Hello, everyone. Welcome to Remembering Us, the storytelling of everyday people dedicated to racial justice, to racial healing. I'm Lisa. Hey, everyone. Celery. So we wanted to take a moment and thank you all for contributions that are coming in of our commitment in having this platform of a podcast as two white women is to compensate BIPOC guests who come on to share their stories. And so with that, I'm going to do a, have a moment of plugging our next series, which is a series that is going to be focused on reparative genealogy around the historical implications of slavery. We are in process. Uh, we are really looking forward to this next series and really appreciate the collaborative commitment with your contributions. So this money, in addition, is going to go to our editing program and also to organizations that are actively engaged in racial justice and racial healing. So please check out the link in the description for more details about that. Today, we are really excited and honored to have Anna Blackshaw, who we both know through Surge, showing up for racial justice here in the Bay Area. Anna Blackshaw is a white organizer, identifies she, her. She is a policy advocate and anti-racist educator, coach, who has been working at the intersections of race, policy, and systems change for the last 30 years. Anna leads workshops on whiteness, race-conscious parenting, and embodied anti-racism. She's a founding member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, Bay Area, so SURGE acronym, which is an organization that mobilizes white people to dismantle white supremacy as part of a multiracial and Black-led movement for justice. So before we get into this conversation, this episode, We'd like to, as always, start with a, a grounding, a way to collect ourselves in this moment in preparation to be in dialogue. So taking a moment to find yourself in your space, maybe you're sitting, maybe you're standing, maybe you're walking, and either closing your eyes, if that's comfortable, available, or maybe softening the gaze. Maybe the gaze goes downward. And before taking a conscious inhale, allow yourself to exhale out in this um, way of offering, giving, letting go before taking in. So then letting the inhale fill letting the exhale then come out naturally from there on. So we're going to take this moment in, in collecting ourselves by bringing somebody to mind that, that you care deeply about. This can be a person. This can be an animal. Bringing a being to mind that is an, an uncomplicated love. Someone that beams love back toward you. 
however that feels and resonates. And imagine that person either next to you, in front of you, maybe you can begin to see the structure of of their body, maybe you can see their eye. And we're going to go through some sayings to wish this person well. Sending this person thoughts of, of care and good wishes. So staying in your body, staying with your breath, holding this person with you, in front of you, beside you. And thinking these words, imagining saying these words that I'm going to be saying, you're sending them to this person. May you be happy and peaceful. May you be safe and protected. May you be free from suffering, both physical and mental. May you live with ease and well-being. And then holding this person with you beside you, keeping them close. We invite you to engage in this conversation. And, and as we dive into this conversation, any healing, any insight, any goodness that comes from this conversation, may this be of benefit to this person that you care deeply for. And may it be of benefit to all beings everywhere. Hi, Anna. Hello, Lisa and Ellery. So nice to be here with y'all. We're so happy to be here with you. So, and as you know, where this series is about, it, we're focusing on the, the ways that we've, as white people, have been acculturated into this construct of being white. And so in that vein, keeping the through line of these episodes, we'd like to start with the question of what is your your family's origin story with this lens of how your ancestors became white? Such a great question to start us off. Thank you. Yes, well, I come from a noisy Irish-Italian family. Um, my grandparents on my mother's side were immigrants from Sicily in the early part of the century. And my father's ancestors came from England and Ireland. And I grew up in Pasadena, California, an area, uh, Los Angeles. And I think that I always grew up with the understanding that I was white mostly because I came from parents who were civil rights activists, particularly my mother. And so she taught me very early on to be a witness in this world, 
And part of that was that we lived in a world of ideas, that we lived a privileged life that was not by accident, but that was a result of a highly constructed system that, in fact, provided many benefits because of the background we had. So so just to give some little context of that, I grew up in Pasadena and at the height of the school integration fights. And so this really was the backdrop for my childhood. You know, Los Angeles and Pasadena were deeply redlined communities. Pasadena was a community that throughout the century had dynamic, vibrant Black neighborhoods, Black businesses, many Black people who had come West for the Great Migration, built beautiful houses, they had businesses. And growing up, you know, the fact that Pasadena, like much of Los Angeles, had been deeply, deeply redlined, divided. The development of the freeways that went through Pasadena that really impacted deeply the economic status and opportunities for uh, people of color in the town that I grew up. And this story was one that I knew and understood my whole life because my parents were, particularly my mother, was part of a dynamic multiracial organizing group who were fighting to get Pasadena's schools integrated. And the reason why this story of Pasadena's bifurcation and the way that redlining had negatively impacted it so deeply was because both of my parents in, you know, Chicago and Trenton, like these are the same kind of stories and things that happened in places like in the North where people came, where Black people came. So the way that my mom always explained why we lived in a city that had such great disparities in education and housing was because of this history in Pasadena, in Los Angeles, in communities and suburbs all over the world where housing laws, real estate practices, all of these deeply racist and seemingly colorblind practices that led us to the kind of environment that we grew up in, which was that we had white schools and we had black schools. And the white schools were much more funded and the black schools were underfunded. And so this idea that there needed to be equity and busing and integration in that way was one remedy. And when I began being bused across town to a historically black neighborhood and a historically black school, for us, it was a victory. I remember that day that I got on the bus. It was a victory after years of hard fought for organizing 
But for many of the white people in Pasadena, and again, everywhere, this was an affront. And this was the white backlash that we see every time we see any kind of racial progress. And we saw white flight in this neighborhood and all over the country. We saw the birth of dozens and dozens of private schools throughout Pasadena and everywhere else. So this was really the environment that I grew up in, one in which my parents really taught me that race does matter and that in order for me to understand that race uh, mattered, I had to understand that I was white. And this was a lesson that really I didn't really understand how unique it was until I was much older and saw the power of the colorblind narrative and how just pervasive that was everywhere around me. So do you notice in raising your son now, does it feel similar to the conversations, the ways that you were talking about race, the ways that you were talking about whiteness um, growing up in Pasadena with your parents? Do you notice similarities in how you talk to your son? What feels the same? What feels different? Both because we're in a different historical moment with ties to the past and also with who you've become in your years of of living and being anti-racist activist yourself? Well, I'm a lot more radical <laughs> than my parents were. I'm an anti-capitalist. And so I think that there is a different kind of way that I ground myself in the kind of transformation I want to see in, in the world. I think what I do the most is, and, and really, I think it's, 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 you know, always the place to start is the idea that, um, you know, he is white and that he understanding that he is white in a society that values his whiteness, I think is very similar to the way that I was raised. Also, this idea of being in service and that we are not outside of racial hierarchies, but in fact, we are part of the racial hierarchy on which the foundation of white supremacy rests. And so it's not enough to just notice. We have to actually interrupt it. So in that way, I see a lot of similarities, but, you know, the language has changed one difference that I really notice today is that, and it's it's interesting, I, I noticed that even from like 10 years ago doing workshops with parents who wanted to cultivate more deep and meaningful conversations with their kids about race and practices to interrupt racism, it, it used to be that it, I would often center like before you can, you know, help your children understand more about white supremacy, you sort of have to understand your own race socialization. So it was kind of through the parent to you have to understand this so that you can give this information to your kid. But now it's different. The kids are coming and pushing the parents and it's the parents who are sort of like, whoa, my kids are talking to me about these ideas. How can I keep up with them? And I think that's really just a beautiful evolution of our movements over the last 10 years and our general 
deepening of our understanding about white supremacy means that so many young people don't have to rely on their parents and these harmful intergenerational narratives. They can actually have access to the information themselves. And that's really what I think is a real engine that's keeping us moving forward. That's so incredible and powerful to hear. And I see examples of it every day, talking to young people of that push, right? Even people in our generation and older who were, like you said, in the movement, right? And, and getting, getting pulled to the next level. No, you're not, you're not, well, you didn't just get to a destination. It's a lifelong journey of change that we all are constantly experiencing. And when you think about what have been some of the most challenging moments of parenting, especially parenting someone with a white identity growing up in this world, and even some of those moments of wanting to support your son, this is your son, right? You're more an extension of your being, truly. And the contradictions that can place when, like you mentioned, the world is favoring white skin bodies. And can you speak to some of those challenging moments where you feel you had to take a, a deep pause on how to move forward with that complexity? Yeah, it's a good question because, I mean, ultimately, every human needs encouragement. Every human wants to feel that they're important and they're valuable. And no parent wants to be constantly making, like minimizing how a child might feel in any certain situation. And ultimately, no matter how much language that I give my son, um, how much I understand his socialization, try to reflect back to his own socialization. He is still the one that has to move through the world, kind of unpeeling the layers. I remember once being surprised when my son spoke of this time that he kind of felt this kind of embarrassment about being white. And I remember being surprised. I was like, but, you know, but we, we've been talking about this your whole life. Like, you know what to say. You know, you, you, you understand that that's just a construct. And, you know, but that's still like his experience of navigating the world in his skin. You know, I think the biggest challenge oftentimes, I mean, and I felt it at times for me, and I think with parents is this idea that we want to protect our children from the harshness of the world. And I think that there are many ways when I have said to my son, you, it is our job to bear witness to this. We have to watch, like particularly around videos, watching violence or hearing stories. And we know that this is something that Black families do not have the privilege of being able to have distance from them and talking to their kids about race and giving them skills so that they can survive in a world that does not value them and in fact often harms them 
is not a choice. And I do not think that we either, we either have a choice as white families and exposing them to the cruelty of the world, the violence of the world to me has to, I mean, obviously there are age appropriate ways, but, you know, it's important for them to be the one to bear witness. So not ever, not all families, not all bodies have to relive that kind of trauma. So really from a young age, that was important to me. And I think that just continuing to have the conversations, even when it feels hard, even when it feels like it's too much. Yeah. What has pulled you through those moments when you feel stuck or without answers? Pausing. <laughs> you know, uh, it's okay to not always know exactly what to say. And, you know, it's funny in my work with white people, I often feel that the pause can be one of the most effective tools is just like, pausing and being okay, knowing that we don't know everything and we can't know what we don't know. And because we are taught so few skills, so few racial literacies, because we often grow up with deep shame around even naming race, you know, sometimes the pause can simply be an incredibly powerful tool, just the way that white silence or color blindness, or to not see color, can have incredibly violent impacts just from like doing nothing. So can the sacred pause be very powerful when we don't know. And I just think that as white people, we're we we want to always explain away everything. Well, no, it's not about race. Well, maybe it was this. Well, maybe it was that. And sometimes it's okay to just be like, you know, I don't know either. And let's just take a minute and try to deepen and maybe go back and read a book or go to Google or try to find a little bit more about what this experience might have been like for a person of color so we can better understand how we can respond next time. Something that I'm really appreciating you bringing up is, is how the young people are coming with their experiences that you that we're centering, we're remembering to to center them in these conversations, and that your son, you know, my students are young members of our community, are of this world, are in this world, and to let the conversation, the questions, the wonderings to come from them. I'm wondering how, how do we as caregivers in any form create the space for young people to be in that inquiry? I just know, you know, as a young person, there were moments of deep dissonance that I didn't have language for and in that, and how harmful that was in how I then began to move in the world and trying to avoid this kind of confusing dissonance moments around race. And so as caregivers, how do we create the space for them to 
come to us with moments of confusion or doubt, or like you said, I mean, him knowing that he could come to you when he was feeling shame about being white, how, how to create that space. Dissonance is such a powerful word for white people because I think part of what happens when we start to understand the ways that we were socialized into our white identities is understanding that we were taught to live with dissonance. And you know, and we see this everywhere, not just in race. I mean, every time we pass a freeway overpass and we see unhoused people there, like we're asking ourselves and others like, oh, maybe sometimes we'll give them something, but other times we'll just avert our eyes. I mean, the great suffering in this world requires us to have these lenses all the time because there is so much suffering in the world. But that dissonance, I mean, we were, I, I believe that we were passed on these harmful intergenerational narratives that literally taught us to not believe what we literally saw. So this idea of being colorblind, like to pretend that we do not see color when it's literally right in front of us, it has been such a powerful tool of those invested in maintaining white supremacy and is often really the first place to start when people want to start unwinding that is to just understand the impacts of being taught to not see something that's literally right in front of our faces. And we can think back to like other words and phrases that we were asked to be comfortable with Things like illegal alien. I mean, it has literally only been in the last decade that people are using the term undocumented. The idea of, you know, the crack baby, the super predator, all of these terms that were taught to us to dehumanize people, you know, convict, felon, they keep us so separated from our humanity. And of course, we know, and for those of us, you know, and women, we also know that that kind of dehumanization is also what allows misogyny to flourish, in the patriarchy to flourish, when we are reduced to body parts, when we are called names. And that dehumanization just has incredible impacts and I think really shapes how just like all the shame and blame that we feel that actually hides the deep sorrow and grief that so many of us hold just beneath the surface. So I'm just so grateful that we have language now in our movements. And it has not always been the case that we have movements that talk about trauma and self-care and boundaries and self-love and, you know, they just kind of give us permission to grieve the parts of ourselves that were lied to and also give ourselves permission to 
forgive and understand the context in which the, our parents, our caregivers, our teachers also lied to us because they were socialized into the same white identities as we were, you know, going back generations and generations. And I think that we, when we can start finding language where we can own our grieving and feel that that's an important process on our journey to developing positive and healthy white racial identities that work to interrupt white supremacy is an incredibly important part of our work. And in terms of creating healthy white identities, I've been really curious about how to be in relationship with you know, my students in this case in their process of identity formation and to be witness and to be any tool of that best serves them as they inquire into who they are. And I'm one person and we're a part of the society that supports and even prides itself in, you know, the, the mainstream white society of individualistic tendencies, while also simultaneously still constructed on this premise that there's a hierarchy and that white body people are on top. And so, so in the process of identity formation for, in this case, white folks, what is the process of being protected, feeling the sense of worth and confidence while in a society that is, you know, telling them all the time that they are the best and that they deserve everything all the time. How to move in that while also beginning to have this transformative community where, where all people have that feeling of worth and confidence and, and sense of well-being and peace and belonging. So I'm curious in, you know, maybe your personal experience with your son, with the workshops, what does identity formation, that process, look like? It's a great question. And I love talking about identity formation because it's really at the heart of understanding the ways that we were socialized into our white bodies and also the way that not only were we socialized into our white bodies, but our white bodies were weaponized in support of white supremacy, and it relies on our being disconnected from that white identity, which is built on the foundation, of course, of not seeing race. So oftentimes, really, the very first place to start is just understanding that we have a racial identity and that that identity is white. And kids are smart. And I don't think that we give them enough credit for the things that they understand about the world. And one really easy place to start with kids often is even just like, you know, noticing the way that we talk about other people and the way we'll often give racial definitions to other people, but not to white people. Right. So when we talk about we'll talk about someone being Latinx or some be, someone being black, but we won't talk as much about them being white. So the sort of process of really starting to just integrate in noticing race and that race does matter and 
yes, we know that race, you know, race is a construct, but it's it's an idea that people use to be able to put people in those racial hierarchies. And really, if kids don't understand that there's a racial hierarchy of which they are, if, you know, white kids don't understand that there's a racial hierarchy, that they're at the foundation of all they have to discern of the world are stereotypes and negative media in, and negative media images. So, you know, starting to really point out to kids people's races, to start having a conversation, to notice the way that they're being depicted on TV, to notice the ways that we fall into normalizing our whiteness and othering everyone else. And it's it's sort of breaking through, I think Beverly Daniels Tatum calls the smog of racism you know, to sort of understand the way that there's these like levels of unseeing that society puts upon. And just by talking about it, having these conversations with kids, normalizing the conversations, I think is really important. And also just that it's not by accident that we were taught this way to believe these this sort of idea that of the rightness of whiteness and that it was part of a system that was constructed to make us believe that race doesn't matter when we know, in fact, that race is vitally important and has to do with every single measure, measured outcome. Race is a factor. Truly. Truly demystifying the topic and taking the shame out of even talking about it to get comfortable with those tough conversations to then be able to change and adapt and recognize in the moment and act is the most fundamental skill set to build with young people and with ourselves. And I've been in one of your workshops, uh, it was Surge, on capitalism and on deconstructing class and naming class backgrounds and how they also impact our identity. Can you speak to that work and what has been the most impactful part of organizing white people and deconstructing the shame around wealth hoarding and class background and also in your own journey? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, class has been such a weapon it, weaponizing whiteness as a way to divide the actual incredible class solidarity that this country was built on. There have been white people in every movement for collective liberation from the beginning of this nation's beginnings. And it gets this idea of mutual liberation that I think is so crucial to the work that we do, that we all have something invested in dismantling white supremacy and the ways that whiteness was designed to be able to keep white people and poor working class white people as well from being able to see a system that actually seeks to dehumanize and 
destroy all of us, that race is used as a way to get people to think that there's something else at play the, rather than the system of capitalism that actually dehumanizes us and races to the bottom when it comes to income, housing, access to health care. We have been taught this idea that, you know, that race is more important. Racism has tried to disconnect white people from those liberation struggles when, in fact, that they have been very important to many, many major struggles in this in this country. So, I mean, mutual liberation and engaging all parts of ourselves when it comes to these liberation struggles is vital. So part of that is understanding the, you know, the racial wealth gap, the racial health care gap, understanding our own histories of how we have acquired the wealth that we have acquired. So when I think back, for example, to, you know, my own family and looking to the way that my father benefited from the GI Bill, the way he benefited from federal housing policies that favored white people, that allowed him to look all over Los Angeles to, to be able to buy a house in the 60s when he did versus being corralled to certain areas, looking at all sorts of ways that our histories have been impacted by an accumulation of wealth that we often will just think is our hard work. So even my ability to be able to go to college, to be able to, to get work, all of those aspects are deeply impacted by historical injustices that allowed my parents, my grandparents, who were immigrants to this country who came with nothing, to be able to accumulate wealth at the same time when Black folks who were in those same areas that my parents, that my grandparents were in, that they were unable to. So we have to really unpack and understand our histories and stop making assumptions about hard work and education and being smarter and just start really unpacking the ways that this system has allowed so many ways for white people to get ahead. Not all white people, obviously, because the system of capitalism harms all of us, but clearly for some of those, particularly those of us who identify as middle class, my background was littered with a subsidized opportunities to, to accumulate wealth. I really appreciate you bringing in the importance of having historical context. I think not having that is also a powerful tool that keeps the power structures in place because of the beliefs that are created after of like, I don't know, I, this is um, by virtue of my hard work, like you're mentioning. And, and then you're also bringing up an important point too of terms of the historical context and making race the, the primary dividing factor. The motive behind that was fear-based. It was so that 
the white male elite could hold power. And so this was then used as a tool to keep people from organizing, to keep white people who were indentured servants you know, during slavery to not join forces. And so this fear is super powerful, very destructive. I'm curious in your experience of how the conversations go, how being in relationship with white people who come from poverty, who are coming from poor working class, who are struggling, how to begin to hold the 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 multidimensionality of like that being a real experience of suffering and injustice while simultaneously being in a white body that holds privilege. I'm wondering, has historical context been helpful in having those conversations? One interesting thing, I mean, particularly around the last 30 years where we've seen so much wealth and the destruction of so many small towns and industries, obviously the loss of wealth from the crash, but also the outsourcing of our jobs and industries that happened over the last 40 years of a neoliberal agenda that also uses a colorblind ideology to do its work. So when we outsource jobs under trade agreements like NAFTA, first to Mexico and then to China, and the ways that this sort of performative language of the tide lifting all boats that to me has a lot of similarities to the language of not seeing color. And those trade agreements and that sort of unfettered globalization that caused the loss of so many jobs and industries and livelihoods you know, including the small mill town that I lived in in North Carolina. I mean, there's small towns all over who are still suffering from that, using the same language of unity and prosperity for everyone, while actually causing deep, deep devastation to these communities and really catered to this idea of the white middle class rather than poor working class whites and people of color, who were, of course, the losers in those trade agreements. So I bring this up because, I, again, this is part of the ways that I see, you know, the, the deep rigging of the system. So, but sort of back specifically to your question about, like, how we can lift up our own privileges, I mean, I love what Heather McGee talks about in her books and her talk about like, why can't we all have nice things? And the idea that we all have a right to a house over our heads. We all have a right to health care. Yes, it's imperative for people with privilege to move that money out through reparations, through other mechanisms. I mean, the disparities are obviously disgusting and awful. So we need to move that wealth. But we also, I believe, want 
everyone to have that sense of safety. And we do have enough for everyone. You know, it's always been an issue of distribution. I mean, how can we live in a country where 30 million people are going to bed hungry every night? You know, this is not the world that we want to live in. There is enough. It is a matter of distribution and white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism requires us to, well, it, it asks us to, it takes from us. It doesn't ask, it takes everything from so many. And so I believe that our fights have to have that big vision. You know, our fights have to be able to see the whole history, the whole system. They have to understand systems of economy and scale and redistribution so that we can, you know, really work at abolishing the system that we have and start dreaming anew a system where we are all taking care of one another. Every question you answer, I just so appreciate your diving in with the clear language to break down with examples each thing we talk about. And in speaking to those moments when you're having those conversations, you know, I think about my grandfather who just passed away, who, you know, very strong working class identity as a bricklayer and the bootstraps mentality and having those real conversations about moments in his life or in our life as a family that have changed the shape of our benefit from the system. What have been some moments when of those conversations in shaping the full picture and how do we create a more welcoming anti-racist movement that is recognizing the dynamics of class and the effects of this capitalistic system. How do we make this movement more accessible? That's a really, really good question. How do we make our, our movements irresistible? How do we bring people in where they feel seen and not judged? How do even those of us who consider ourselves anti-racist continue to do our own work so that we can be able to meet people where they're at in the eye without holding that grief and shame? I think that the language that has become really more evident in the last 10 years, even within Surge, that we raise money and we transfer it to people of color-led organizations, you know, making explicit how we understand the way that wealth accumulation has happened in this country, and then also really centering the experience of working-class people who might not feel part of movements, especially in coastal areas where you have a different kind of population of, you know, white professionals. And I think this has really been at the heart of Serge's work in the last several, you know, last couple of years, particularly really trying to focus in on economic justice and understanding that racism is deeply tied to 
issues of economic justice and that our movements are connected and that we have to be just as willing to support the struggles of farm workers working for a living wage in the fields of California or Florida as we are with the, you know, historically black woodworkers in factories throughout the South to the shuttering of our rust belt industries, that those are all deeply connected. And also the false narrative that we've been fed that centers this idea of the white middle class versus actually the dynamic, vibrant white working class that really is the majority of white people. The majority of people on government assistance is white people. Just the way that I think white people need to find language about being white, I think people of privilege need to find language about being privileged, that they can also start understanding the reasons why they have privilege, what those historical contexts are, understanding how their parents or their families got their privilege how they accumulated their wealth and being able to name that too. Also to be thinking through guilt and shame around that. And often, I mean, as you all must come across in your work as well, like when we start making concrete steps in our own lives and we diminish our own guilt and shame because we have found concrete steps that interrupt the cycles, a lot of that fear goes away because we hold on to so much because we're scared of saying it. We want to pretend that we're not wealthy. We want to, we're embarrassed of our rich families. We're embarrassed that we don't have any student debt. But when we can start integrating that into our language of this is the benefit that I got. And this is how it shaped who I am. And this is what allowed me to be able to fight for justice for people who did not have what I had. We, we can just be so much more powerful when we leverage those identities for justice rather than cower under them with guilt and shame. It's so great because what I'm hearing when listening to you talk is beginning to act ourselves into a new culture because I think a lot about in anti-racism there's this like fight against and then people are starting to talk about like, what is the vision what's the dream what are what are we creating and what ways are we contributing to the kind of vision that we want to be a part of and you're already speaking to that of the way that we are in relationship with ourselves the way that we can acknowledge when shame comes up and be in community with that. And that to me, it feels like belonging. And that is a part of my vision. And so I'm wondering, you know, as cliche as it is and thinking about your son, so to speak, and the world that you want him to be a part of, you want to create with him. What does this, this multicultural world vision 
look like for you in this particular moment? A world where we take care of each other. I want to smash the individualist ethos that has been so deeply embedded into our psyches and create a world where, yeah, we all get taken care of. We all get seen for our values, where we all have language to process the trauma that some of us have experienced. And ultimately, this idea that we have a solid foundation. The biggest gift that I received from growing up in the dynamic, wild, noisy, I mean, I'm one of seven children, was the idea that I would never be alone. This is, to me, the biggest financial, economic, emotional foundation that I became aware of at a very, very early age was I knew that I would never be unhoused. I knew that there would always be somewhere for me to go, no matter you know what directions I went in life. I knew that if I took a risk and stumbled, I would have a safety net to fall back on. And that knowledge is what gave me the confidence to be adventurous, to take risks with my career, to follow dreams, to be more of myself. You know, that sense that I would always have a place to go. And I know that my son feels that. I know that he feels that and it has allowed him, even at, you know, 18 years old, to be more of himself out in the world, to take risks, to follow dreams. And if there's anything that I want for every human is the feeling that they have a place to land, that they feel cared for by community, that is not the reality today. That is not the world that we, we live in. I mean, there is so much suffering, but that is the world that I believe that we can build. I don't know what we're going to have to tear down to get there and what kind of suffering we'll have to get through to get there, but I do believe that another world is possible. Yeah, that's the pillow that I want everyone to feel. Truly, your vision is so clear how you break down each piece of this system and how it affects us in daily life. It's crystal. Yeah. And what also happens to me is like it anchors me when hearing you, I softened, I had all these images of people that I care for, you know, there's this deep tenderness that got awoken in me. And that is love. I'm just like re-anchored in what fuels me, which is love. And in the way that you're painting that in a world where everyone feels like they have a place to go, where they can take those risks and fill into themselves while also being a part of and contributing to and held by community. Hey. Yeah. Yes, I have had amazing teachers in my life. 
I have had many people who have been willing to take me by the hand and to give me feedback. I mean, I've been doing this work now for three decades. And, you know, one experience I did want to say is how deeply impactful my time in South Africa in the 90s was in the post election at 94 and the post-liberation movement there and the transfer to democracy and particularly being able to witness the truth and reconciliation process there where I just saw such, you know, you mentioned love and forgiveness and that really had a huge impact on me and before I learned the term mutual liberation, I learned about Ubuntu in South Africa, this idea that Archbishop Desmond Tutu talked about throughout the whole time of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, you know, my humanity is tied up in yours. And that sense of love and shared humanity was just really the cornerstone of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where you would hear stories every day on the radio about how much people were suffering and suffered and giving the opportunity to survivors and perpetrators to share their stories just how powerful that was. And it had a huge impact on me and it helped me to soften my anger that so often sort of drove a lot of my activism work in the early part of my life. And I mean, it's so much more powerful to be driven by great feelings of love than feelings of rage. It was deeply impactful to me to be able to experience and witness firsthand some of the enormous willingness of people to be able to see other people as human, even when they had been harmed so deeply by them. Yes. A worldview-changing experience. It's just so beautiful to work with other white people who also feel as invested in our mutual liberation. It's really, it's the work. It's the work of our, of our times right now. Truly. Truly.